By the time you hear this podcast, the United States will have held an election for its 46th president. His own Homeland Security Director and as well as the FBI Director says there is no evidence at all that mail-in ballots are a source of of being manipulated and cheating. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. This This is a major fraud in our nation. We're going to have to be patient until we, uh, the hard work of tallying the votes is finished. And it ain't over till every vote is counted. Every ballot is counted. As I'm recording, full election results are in the future, and the news cycle is focusing on doubts about the process and about the outcome. That English word, doubt, can refer to a range of attitudes. It can mean something like an unfounded fear, a sense of dread, or worry. But we can also use the word to talk about something specific that we doubt. We might have a doubt about who has won an election. We have a doubt. Is the winner Trump, or is the winner Biden? Doubts like this can feel paralyzing. But Nyaya philosophers argue that doubt, when we really understand it, is actually a motivation for investigation. Today, we'll look at how early Nyaya philosophers might apply their theory of doubt to contemporary U.S. politics. I'm Malcolm Keating, and you're listening to Sutras and Stuff. Doubt is a state where there's something which impedes our default trust and something which we should take seriously. That's Professor Matt Dasty, professor of philosophy at Bridgewater University, explaining how the 6th century Nyaya philosopher Idiotikara understands doubt. According to Idiotikara, doubt is a kind of reflective thought which aims at a specific detail. It's an uncertain state that occurs because of something that we have or haven't experienced. We'll be using Idiotikara's ideas, written down in the 6th century, to guide us through the U.S. election today. According to Idiotikara, doubt is a sort of consideration or deliberation, not some vague feeling of worry that comes out of nowhere. But it comes about when we have experienced the world in a way where we can't rationally decide between two options that have been presented to us. Here's an example of one kind of doubt, doubt from commonalities. Imagine you're walking outdoors, and in the distance you see a tall, thin object. From your vantage point, you can't see if it's moving or if it has arms or legs. You might think to yourself, is that a person or a post? And that's because both a person and a post are tall, thin objects. You haven't identified something that would distinguish the person from the post. This sort of experience happens to us all the time, especially with our eyesight as we move through the world and things come into and out of focus. Typically, we just get closer to the object or we find other ways to investigate. In fact, this is a crucial point that Ijyotakara makes. If we didn't have doubt, we wouldn't investigate things. For instance, because scientists are uncertain or they doubt whether there's water on the moon or not, they might send rovers to explore the surface close up. And that's because we don't have enough information to distinguish the moon from planets like Earth, which do have water. A doubt remains, since it has some of the chemical characteristics that might mean water is present. And as it turns out, it seems to be true that there is water on the moon. 
But imagine if scientists had just held on to a mistaken idea that the moon doesn't have water. Then they wouldn't have investigated its surface more closely. So, Udiyotakura argues, doubt, as opposed to just a mistaken idea, spurs us to inquiry, and inquiry is a good thing. But there's another kind of doubt, which we're familiar with today, that we might worry, well, it isn't so good. That's what Nyaya philosophers call doubt from controversy. In this kind of doubt, two people claim things which both can't be true. As we heard in our last episode, someone's speech is ordinarily a good way of knowing, a way of knowing called testimony. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. This is a major fraud in our nation. We're going to have to be patient until we, uh, the hard work of tallying the votes is finished. And it ain't over till every vote is counted. Every ballot is counted. At least that's the case when that person knows something and intends to communicate it faithfully to us. But when two people say contradictory things, we can't take both of them as being good testifiers. One or both of them are either mistaken or lying. Hearing two political candidates make opposing claims about whether someone has won and about whether the election is fair will naturally and rationally bring about the kind of doubt that Nyaya philosophers are concerned with. However, Udyotakara would say that doesn't mean we should give up on the possibility of knowing the truth. It means instead that we should investigate. And here's another important point for him. What we come to doubt rationally isn't whether testimony is a way of knowing. Instead, what we should doubt is the claim, for instance, that a particular candidate has won the election. This is a crucial difference between what we might call local doubt, that is, wondering whether a specific claim is true or not, and global doubt, wondering if we can even know anything ever at all. According to Udyotakara, global doubt is unsustainable. We just couldn't act if we were constantly doubting each and every experience that we had. I talked with Stephen Phillips, professor of philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin, about how Nyaya philosophers reconcile the fact that we human beings can make mistakes with the idea that we also can acquire knowledge. So, so sure, we, we, we know we're fallible, and there can be defeaters that come along you know, that we become aware of and we give up some of our views, but we have to get along in the world and we need inference. We need testimony. Testimony, testimony is, is like that too. I mean, we, we, we just naturally give the benefit of the doubt. Now, if there's a standing defeater, my brother, who I know is a liar or Trump, uh, then we don't give the benefit of the doubt. There's a standing block. A defeater is an experience, which means that we can't take an earlier experience as knowledge. Sometimes these experiences, these defeaters, are directly contradictory to something that we've already experienced. So, for instance, imagine I think I see a coiled green snake at the side of my house. I get closer to it, and then I see, or I think I see, a coiled green garden hose. In that case, I shouldn't continue to believe my first experience, that there's a snake. My second experience is a direct defeater to the first one. Other times, defeaters are more indirect, and they undermine our beliefs. So let's consider the snake hose example again. Suppose I think I see a coiled green snake at the side of my house. And then I realize oh, I'm not wearing my glasses. And also I know that I don't have very good vision. 
that undermines my first experience. I shouldn't take it as a genuine instance of perception, at least not until I put on my glasses or I get closer or I call somebody else out to take a look. For someone who needs glasses, their poor vision is what Professor Phillips calls a standing defeater. It means that experiences they have without their glasses shouldn't be taken as genuine perceptions. They'll be fuzzy, they'll be indistinct, and that means that we shouldn't commit ourselves to thinking there's a snake, for instance, when our experiences come from bad eyesight. The example that Professor Phillips gave us is for testimony. If we know that someone is a habitual liar, then we shouldn't take their testimony at face value, just like we shouldn't take our visual experiences at face value when we need glasses. So when it comes to doubt that arises from controversy due to testimony, one way to resolve the doubt is to investigate where that testimony is coming from. Are both people reliable? Do they tend to convey true things and to do so accurately? I talked with Professor Phillips about this problem in the contemporary world. Now, I, I, once I was teaching Nyaya uh, you know, to a, a bunch of advanced undergraduates, philosophy majors in a little seminar. Uh, and and uh, when, I, when I, we were talking about testimony, um, one uh, uh, wise undergraduate says, well, maybe in the society of uh, ancient and classical India, you could trust people, right? <laughs> but in our, in our society, maybe it is better to start with doubt. Maybe we shouldn't give the benefit of the doubt. I mean, there's so much misinformation out there and through advertising trip attempts to manipulate us. Uh, that uh, you know the, the the social circumstances are different, and so we can't give the benefit of the doubt. But Odiotikara might reply that what Professor Phillips' student has pointed to isn't a problem with testimony in general, but it's a problem with specific testifiers, like certain newspapers or speakers. Professor Dasty makes a connection between the motivations for contemporary newspapers and the possibility of their being biased or inaccurate. Um, we live in a time where the news is radically uh, fragmented, and in effect, the model for the news, even legacy media like the New York Times or the Washington Post, they basically have to fight for viewership and to some degree, in my jaded perspective, pander. Um, and so at that point, what you have are, you, you might have different statements about some matter of fact, and when they disagree, if it, matter, if it means enough, we try to follow up uh, according to the knowledge sources at our disposal. What he's suggesting here about pandering is consistent with another major theme of Nyaya philosophers. The human beings, well, we're not purely rational creatures, but our thinking is deeply impacted by our emotional lives. For instance, Nyaya philosophers observe that sometimes people hold a view not because it's true, but because believing it might bring them wealth or fame or praise. And this kind of attachment to what other people think about us, to material things, well, it can interfere with our ability to reason well. Of course, Nyaya philosophers also believe that we can change our emotional lives by correcting our thinking. If we can break into this cycle by getting the right understanding of the world, say that fame is fleeting, we can change our attitudes and be less attached to what people think about us. And if we're less concerned with what people think about us, we may be less inclined to believe things just because it makes us look good to others. 
However, Dyotakara and other Nyaya thinkers believe that unless we're open to hearing some contradictory ideas, to entertaining doubts and then resolving them by investigation, we may just continue to believe falsehoods. And we might do this because of unexamined motivations like making ourselves look good or acquiring wealth. So this might have some lessons for our contemporary world. Here's Professor Dasty again. If someone who is knowledgeable disagrees with you, you should now take that as an opportunity to stop and reflect on the, the standards of your beliefs. You understand? So, so in other words, someone's saying, well, uh, if doubt causes, which it does, doubt can cause kind of psychological, you have to put work into it. To, to now maybe make an analogy that may be unhelpful. <laughs> but um, so in their in the brilliant book, Thinking Fast and Slow by Dan Kenneman, he talks about uh, the difference between um, uh, ordinary kind of subconscious processing and then when you have to become reflective. And he points out that when you're mentally tired and the older you get, uh, the resources to go into this reflective state are harder to generate. And I think there's an interesting way where the kind of caricature of like an old person just shouting, get off my lawn. Well, they maybe have less mental energy for nuance. Uh, the degree to which one wants to now use this to think about American politics, I'll leave for you, Malcolm. But, but, um, but, but what I'm getting at is someone might say like, well, I just don't have that mental energy. Okay, that's, a, that's one issue. That's fine. But, but to the degree that thoughtful people disagree with you, one should understand that one's view may, may not be as nuanced as it could be, and therefore one should at least become a little humble, <laughs> right? So what are the implications for American politics? Well, in a contested election where competing pieces of testimony are incompatible, it is rational for doubt to arise. And in a fragmented context where testimony is coming from multiple sources, it will depend a lot on your news sources, what you doubt, and why you doubt. So one lesson might be that the difference between people with different political viewpoints is not about one side being purely rational and the other being irrational, but that one side is being rational with regard to different sources of conflicting testimony. But a second lesson is that once doubt arises, we have a responsibility to investigate. And that involves both investigating the legitimacy of our sources of news, whether they are genuine testifiers, and investigating the facts themselves through other sources. And finally, a lesson that Adyotakara would have for all of us is that we are all deeply attached to self-preservation, and none of us are perfectly rational in our beliefs. So we ought to check for places where we're clinging to beliefs for less than rational reasons. And one way to do this is through actually engaging with other people who have different ideas. But how do we do this? How can we reason together? Can we have helpful conversations with people who believe very different things? That question is the topic of our next episode. Mm -hmm.